back to the Spartan Street Podcast. This is episode 23, Hoplites and the Spartan War Machine. Hello. By the year 750 BCE, the ancient Greek world was in a state of flux. Mired in the Dark Ages for several hundred years, society was beginning to claw itself out of this culturally dim period into the relative light of the Archaic Era. Population centres were beginning to coalesce with the advent of the independent city-state. The new alphabet, made for an easy transmission of ideas, becoming the mortar that glued these bricks of habitation together in a reasonably homogenous landscape. And a new type of warrior came to dominate the narrow, fertile valleys of Hallas, replacing the loosely organised warbands of the past. In the space of a century, hoplite warfare swept the land, so immediately preponderant in its efficiency that every polis was forced to adopt its precepts or face being left behind. Packed together into serried ranks, the hoplites presented a near impenetrable shield wall to their opposing foes. By the time of the Greco-Persian Wars, the men of the phalanx's ranks were the fiercest fighting force in the Mediterranean. Later, Alexander the Great took its concept into the heart of the venerable Persian Empire, utterly crushing its ancient institutions. Although all Greek cities participated in the new style of combat, the Spartans were masters of its form. Emancipated from any task other than war, through the virtual enslavement of the helot class, they had the time and the freedom to devote themselves to the intricacies of massed ranked phalanxes. With me today to discuss this new type of military doctrine is Professor Paul Bardunius. Hi Paul, and welcome to the Spartan History Podcast. It's good to be here. Thanks mate. Now Paul is a professor at the Florida Atlantic University where he specialises in the field of entomology. Salient to our program today, Paul is also the co-author of the book's book, Hoplites at War, a comprehensive analysis of heavy infantry combat in the Greek world from 750 to 100 BCE. Now, couple that with the fact that he has genuine Spartan blood coursing through his veins via family descent, and we have someone I'm truly honoured to be talking to. I guess the first thing I'd like to know, Paul, is how does a professor of entomology wind up as an expert in the field of hoplite warfare? So that is an interesting story because what happened is I, of course, having family history from Sparta was raised on all of the Spartan stories and the concepts of Greek warfare. And as I got older, I got interested in reading the works of guys like Hansen and Van Wees and the, the, you know, the really prominent historians and their descriptions of uh, hoplite warfare. But I also was, at the time, finishing my PhD on studying how large groups of insects, in my case, but really anything, come together and form groups that move in a cohesive manner without any leader. So what we call these groups, we call them self-organized. And every time you watch like a school of fish swimming or a flock of birds swimming, that's how, or flying, or penguins swimming, right? That's how, that's how they uh, are organized. There's no leader in a bird flock. And yet those starlings that you watch can make those crazy cloud-like patterns of perfectly organized um, birds that really would be the envy of any general on a battlefield. So while I was reading all this stuff about hoplite warfare and also studying these other things, I started to realize that there were elements to the, the physics of motion and uh, coordination of groups of men that the historians really were not understanding. So uh, there's been a war really amongst two armed camps of historians over hoplite warfare. I'm sure you're well-versed in this. Yes. One, one side presents a picture where hoplites were very heavy and they had to fight in deep lines and ranks 
and they would charge at each other, almost like medieval knights charging each other across a battlefield. And then when they finally reached each other, they would essentially slam right into each other and use the 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 mass of this, you know, momentum of this charge and the mass of their bodies behind the shields to immediately try to push the other army off the field. And that has a name. It's called Othismos. Now, we we don't know exactly what Othismos really means in terms of what the Greeks intended, but in the modern context, Othismos has become this mass shove of all of the ranks of men together. Now, on the other side, for for intuitive reasons, they realize this may not really work the way it's being described. So they abandoned it completely and came up with a scheme of battle where um, there was no pushing at all. And they would uh, account for the references for pushing as simply you know, um, metaphors or you're pushing men off the field the way you would you know, uh, push out uh, people on, uh, you know, uh, you know, out of a conversation or something mm -hmm. like that, right? So it's a metaphorical push. Yeah, well, right. I realized, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, carry on. Oh, I realized early on that essentially both of them are right and both of them are wrong because they, they like the blind men and the elephant, right? They can't come to grips with each other because they don't have the context to bring it all together. And in fact, those that thought they charged and ran and pushed and they thought that the charging and the running was important for the pushing were wrong because that's not how you push in a big group. In fact, it actually makes your push less powerful if you're all running in a group before you push. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Look, there is a, there is a definitely a, a lot of contention around uh, yeah. exactly what you described there and a few other things that we'll we'll no doubt touch on in this interview. But um, before we get there, I, I understand oh, okay. you, told me, you told me off air that um, your great-grandfather emigrated from, from Sparta. I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about his story and perhaps what the Greece might have been like that he left in that time. Right. So he came over in 1900. This was uh, Miletios Bardunias. And in Greece at the time, there was, a, there was an enormous amount of immigration from southern Greece. So he... He came here, the last place he left in, in Greece was Sparta. And my last name comes from a region just south of Sparta. So Bardunia is a region that's between Sparta and the Mani Peninsula. And it's funny because there are not many of us with the last name in America. But when I went back to Sparta a couple of years ago, everybody was like the Jones of Sparta. Everybody had the name. Everybody had some, everybody knew somebody who had the name, right? Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I got I got a couple free dinners out of it. But um, <laughs> I would go into a, a village and they'd be like, "Oh, go get you know Nicholas Bardunius because his cousin's here," that kind of thing. <laughs> so uh, it was fun. But the but yeah, though the conditions were were fairly bad. But that was the case in you know all of the Mediterranean at that time. So my other part of my family is Italian. So both of them shared similar immigration stories coming from a relatively impoverished uh, place where you couldn't find work and coming over to here into in through Ellis Island. They came through Ellis Island and then uh, they ended up in Astoria in uh, Queens, yeah. which is where lots and lots of Spartans ended up. Yeah, right, right. So obviously you've traveled the area fairly extensively. What's your fondest memory of Sparta and Laconia more generally, I guess? So... A couple of things in Sparta. So going through Sparta, the the place itself is somewhat magical. As you as you take the ride from Athens to Sparta, it's a landscape that 
most of us in America probably have never really seen and that you have these really craggy high mountains and then suddenly just completely flat land between them. Mm. So you know, I grew up in Southern New York and we have lots of hills and valleys and stuff, but this was just a stark contrast between mountains and completely flat land in between them. And you can see how that influences the history because they're fighting over these patches of flat land between these, you know, large, steep, craggy mountains. Yeah, right. Yeah. If I could tell you, I, uh, one of my most fondest memories of the place was I was staying uh, in the middle of winter up on Mount Taigatus and uh, at a log mm. cabin. And it was slightly just above the snow line. And uh, I went in just on dusk and went out into the balcony with a nice uh, glass of Coq in the or red wine. And uh, <laughs> a little mist was lifting off the floor there. And it was sort of enshrouding the, the little lodge that I was out in this, in this magical sort of, you know, grey swirling uh, cape almost that was coming off the valley floor. And uh, I went inside and enjoyed a, a rabbit that was just cooked as a brace up over the fire. And it was one of the most magical times oh. I've ever that's wonderful. Yeah, that's that's the kind. I wish I had had something on that level with the locals. I had interactions with local Spartans uh, at restaurants, and it was wonderful. They were delightful. The people yeah. were so friendly. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, I mean, you saw this. The other thing that surprised me, I guess, is I didn't expect the forests to be so thick. Mm. I mean, those forests in Arcadia and in southern Laconia are, are really like primeval forests. They are impressive, impressive forests. You can well imagine um, that it was the same for the Spartans, you know. Yeah, BCE. yeah I mean, you can see them running through those forests chasing boar, right? I mm. mean, it's just uh, unbelievable, really, yeah. Well, one of the few things they could do to avoid uh, communal dining, I suppose. Now, let's, um, <laughs> let's get back to the book now. The, uh, the statement in the title of it being a comprehensive analysis is, is no lie whatsoever. I had the pleasure of reading it thoroughly in the lead-up to this interview, and it was indeed fully comprehensive. What was the inspiration behind its creation by you and your co-author? It's actually funny. The inspiration for that book was uh, my griping about <laughs> nobody correcting information that had been put out by a couple other books. And my co-author, uh, Fred Ray, who had written, a, he's written a number of excellent books on uh, battle descriptions. And he convinced me, well, why don't we just write a book and set things straight as far as I'm concerned. So <laughs> that's what we did. And it really wasn't aimed at historians. It was really aimed at guys like me, guys who were not historians, but who um, were, you know, plowing their way through this material. And a lot of the sort of the, the information that we're, we're learning now on hoplites, I think is actually coming from people who are not historians, only because there's been a, a deadlock on this. So there's no new information really coming out. The only thing that's new is the testing that people are doing now with experimental archaeology. And that's only becoming a respectable field now, whereas for years, you know, it was called you know, being a reenactor or being a... Uh, <laughs> LARPing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. LARPing, exactly. I think it's so, one of those things, if you step away from the, uh, the academic circles and that's a very, you know, coerced and strictured sort of method of methodology of thinking, uh, you, you open yourself up to a bit more of diversity of thought and opportunity. I think that's where the real, the real meat on the bone is, so to speak, when it comes to this uh, experimental archaeology, as you suggest. Yeah, I agree. I think it, need, it needed some outsiders, only because the camps had become so entrenched that, and it had been tied into to American politics. I mean, it was it was a bit crazy how how <laughs> yeah. If you mentioned if you mention the word athismos, that'll bring up you know your political party depending uh, on who you're talking. So well, look, so, yeah, that's what we need to just more more tie-ins to politics. That's that's exactly, <laughs> exactly. What the world needs now. Primarily, what I'd like to discuss with you is the evolution of phalanx warfare in Greece from its inception and bring that concept right up to the eve of the Greco-Persian Wars. 
I've recently stopped the, the chronological narrative of the show following my description of the, the so-called Second Messanian War, and I see the latter half of the 7th century as a time of crystallisation for political and societal practices within Sparta into the forms more popularly understood during the classical period. Now, I'm trying to flesh out the various facets of the new and supposedly equal Sparta that was forming at that time. Having previously discussed religion, governmental apparatuses and state-sponsored education, a talk on warfare in the archaic period is, to my mind at least, the next natural topic. Before we get there, though, I think it would be worth looking at warfare before the advent of the phalanx. Could you paint us a detailed picture or a detailed as possible picture of the style of conflict we could expect during the Dark and Late Bronze Ages in ancient Greece? So during the Dark Ages, what we tend to see are, of course, smaller clashes with you know, not anywhere near as many men on the field. We see um, if, we, if we are getting a true picture at all in the Iliad of what happens pre-Hoplite, which is debatable whether we are or not. But if we are getting a, a true picture, then what we're seeing is a lot of mix of light troops uh, running around, um, you know, a little a smattering of well-armored and armed heavier troops and uh, some sort of a more dispersed fighting than we see in uh, later hoplite warfare. Now, the transition from that to hoplite warfare is, is not as stark as you might think because as I, uh, I was gonna to touch on this earlier, but I may, I'll touch on it now, that there's the two schools of thought on what exactly is a hoplite. And one school of thought is that a hoplite has to be formed in ranks and files and he um, runs directly to attack the enemy and they fight with spears or they just push each other. The other school is that you can be a hoplite, um, but you can be intermixed with other troops that are throwing weapons and you could even have cavalry in the mix and um, you have, uh, you know, um, what Van Wies called a uh, motley crowd of mixed troop types. I think that the, the truth lies somewhere between there in the early archaic. I think we had a switch where we started to get um, better armed essentially war bands, like you would see later in Tacitus, where you have a front line of heavily armored men. And then as you go back from the front line to you know, the mob behind them, you get progressively less and less well armored. And the men in the back could be throwing rocks even. They're not even throwing uh, even spears, or some could be. You know, so we, we think of light troops, we think of bowmen, but to the ancient Greeks in this period, light troops were considered naked and they were, they were probably throwing rocks, heavy rocks, and they had maybe animal hides over their arms as shields. They were called, uh, one, one term for them was a siloi, and they would, um, in my opinion, they would have formed the sort of the rear ranks of these groupings. And if you look at that, that sort of conceptual framework where you have this war band with the front of heavy armored and armed men, and then it goes back to lighter, Troops, that's something that we see in many cultures over and over again, all the way up to the Saxons and the Norse. You have men who are forming these sort of walls of shields, and behind them, others are throwing things over them. But key is that because in this early form of combat, hoplites threw spears. They didn't just charge in and, and get to spear range, you know, range and stab at each other. They stopped short of that and they threw spears at each other. And <clears throat> we definitely see that in, in the Iliad, but we also see that in 
the works of Tertius, for instance, who is directly in the period that you're interested in right now. Mm. And so he has a, uh, in, one, in one of his poems, he describes men, he's telling the men, don't stay out of spear range, out of missile range, spear throw range. Get in there, get in close. And he tells the light troops, stay right up behind the other men and throw over throw around them or over them. So you could either interpret that as them literally standing side by side each hoplite, which I think is a little unlikely, or standing behind the formation of hoplites and throwing over the top. But either way, <clears throat> at this period in time, those light troops are essentially part of the heavy troops. Mm. He doesn't differentiate them into a separate unit like we'll see you know, in the classical hoplite formations. Yeah, understood. Yeah, and I think Tertius for the for the Spartans in particular, falling in that you know early to to mid seventh century range, really shows the the state of that transition of, of warfare in that period. And um, you touched earlier on before about the the landscape of of Greece, and and I've proposed it as well that most of the the wars in early Greece were fought over the the scarcity of arable land. Could you develop that a little bit, and also? I guess how the topography and the nature of the valleys help dictate the fashion of the new the new warfare that we'll be talking of in this podcast. Well, I would say that th there's an interesting thing with hoplites because a lot of people will say if you have lots of mountain passes, why do you have hoplites? Because you can just defend those mountain passes with light troops. Now that actually is something that failed many times in. Greek history. So it's not that they didn't try to do that, because there are a number of times they tried to do that, <clears throat> and it failed. So the thing is, if you can't succeed in defending those mountain passes so easily, then um, warfare comes down to defending the trees <clears throat> in, in the arable land, right? So when, when you beat a hoplite army, you charged in and you chopped down all their olive trees, or you chopped down all their grapevines, right? So essentially, you're defending your crops more than even your city, because they, they rarely would take a city, especially in the early period. It wasn't about taking the enemy city. It was about essentially punishing them and um, you know, essentially proving the, the valor of your men by fighting with them and, and uh, you know, taking over their means of production that way. Yeah, understood, understood. Right, so before we get into it, I think it might do good for the listeners to, to get a proper grasp on the terminology of, of, of phalanx and hoplite. What do those words mean as far as the historical sources go? And, um, and can you give us an idea of, of, I guess, their translation into English, what they, what they directly mean? Sure. So hoplite is interesting because hoplite, uh, we're, really, we're really talking about someone who is uh, equipped with the tools of war. So a hoplon, hop, hoplon is just a tool in Greece. It just, it, you have to know by context that they mean a tool of war. So if you have a panoply, you have all the tools for war. Ah, yes, pan, oh, yes, yes. Yeah, so it's, ah. it's just a panhop, panoply, and that's all the tools of war. And so the definition of what a hoplite is, is based on what you think you need to go to war. Now, functionally, we're told that the most important elements are the shield, and basically you could get away with just having a shield, although obviously you'd want to have a spear. Uh, do some attacking as well, but the shield becomes the most important thing. We're actually told in this weird passage, we're told that a hoplite gets his name from his aspis. An aspis means shield. What's weird is hoplon also sometimes means, means shield. So it's just weird that it was worded that way. So they didn't say hoplite gets his name from his hoplon, right? So, but it, it, it drives it home that 
the hoplite gets his name from his from his shield. And you know, many in the later period, we in the classical period, we have authors telling us that the shield is important because it doesn't just defend you; it defends the rest of the line. That mm, sort of thing. Yeah, Whereas yeah. a helmet or something defends just you. Yeah, yeah. With this or upon it, in other words. Right. Exactly. Now, with the with the term phalanx, that's an interesting one because a phalanx, the term phalanx, does not come into use the way we use it now until Xenophon. So we're talking the end of the fifth century. So after the Peloponnesian War, essentially the end of the Peloponnesian War. The author just before him, uh, Thucydides, uses it actually much better. And he uses the term parataxis. And parataxis means taxis, which means unit, essentially. Taxis no, doesn't mean a number, it has no number attached to it, it just means unit. So it could be many different kinds of men stuck together. But Taxis and para means alongside. So what he's describing is a battle line where you bring up the taxis alongside each other, like a string of beads. And that's crucial because I think in the popular mindset, we have this concept of the phalanx as a single line that could never be broken anywhere or you lose the battle, that kind of thing. And that's completely untrue. Most battles ended with one side, one part of the phalanx winning and another part of the phalanx losing. So they would be moving in opposite directions, right? So it's not uncommon that the fate of each individual unit was different in a battle, whether the whole battle was victorious or if the whole battle was a loss for their side. Understood, yeah. So your starting point, as the, the title in the book suggests, for the evolution of hoplite warfare is 750 BCE. Given that that figure likely predates any surviving written literature that we have, what evidence do you have to propose such an early date? Well, so that date is the earliest date that we, we could assign. The, the hoplite uh, probably predates whatever we want to consider this sort of shield wall mm. and phalanx. So, for instance, the shield itself, the aspis, is interesting because all the way through its history, down to the classical period, it has some weird elements in there that are artistic and don't really do anything. But for instance, around the rim of, of the shield, it has a pattern called a gauche pattern. And this is reminiscent of wicker work. And it's thought by, it was thought, I think it was Snodgrass who proposed mm -hmm. that this was a remnant of the ancestral shield, which was made of wicker. And, or at least the rim was made of wicker. And you know what's weird is that there are parallels that can be found to the Greek shield in the um, panoply of the, of the Philippine Moros and Bagabos. These are tribes in the Philippines. And they actually have a shield which has a wooden core and a wicker rim, a rattan rim, actually. And when I first saw that, that, that really struck me because you can imagine in the evolution of an aspis, there may have been a point where the, the rim was wicker and there was a core somewhere in the shield that was wood. But that brings us to the question of why they had an aspis at all. Why, why did this shield evolve, right? They had essentially what may look like better shields, big, almost like the Roman um, scutum, a big mm. rectangular shield of some sort, or the big sort of figure eight shields that we saw. And they would be held in one hand, right, which is really advantageous for most types of warfare. Holding the, the shield in your hand lets you move it a lot better than stuck on your arm for most types of warfare. You're gonna tell me right now I had to go fight someone one-on-one, -on -one, I would choose a shield I could hold in my hand over one that was strapped on my arm. So 
there's definite advantages to not having this weird strap on the arm. But I think we see it, it it's been hypothesized for two reasons. One, it may have been a cavalry, uh, shield for cavalrymen. So it may have been a shield that you had on your arm because you were riding a horse and you needed to strap it on your arm to ride into battle. That, that's possible. The other one is that it was a shield designed to, almost like the, the later Pelta, which also had a strap on the arm. And that allowed you to carry other spears in your hand. So you could have a whole bunch of javelins in your hand if you could strap the shield on your arm as well as holding it in your hand. And it's possible that that's where it originated from. But however it came about, somewhere in that sort of 100-year range from 750 to 650, we see a shift. And I think uh, this is the point at which you started the discussion because you were talking about the Second Mycenaean War and this, this whole time period. We see some interesting things. We see, um, for instance, there's a, a big war that occurs called the Lelantine War. And that happens at a, just somewhere around the turn of that century. And we have some interesting little snippets from that. We have one from a contemporary uh, named Archilokos, who's one of my, my favorite of the ancient poets. He has his famous, he got banned from Sparta because he has his famous poem about throwing away his shield so that he could escape from some so he um thracians i'm sorry so he he has a poem where he says you know my shield is stuck under a bush in thrace but okay big deal i get a new one at least i'm alive and then uh and of course the spartans didn't like that and um but he also has a snippet in there where he's talking about a, this lelantine war and in this war he describes and i think i wrote i think i kept it somewhere yeah he describes um that not many bows will be strung or uh, slings used in the battle. And that's sort of interesting because what is he saying there? Especially if you understand what I said earlier about mm. how the, the light troops sort of formed the rear of the heavy troops. And we had this case of the Lelantine War where this is almost like World War I of the Greeks. This is a, at some point, all of Greece, well, many, many parts of Greece got sucked up into this war. So it's, possible that what you really were looking at is just the, the concentration of heavily armed men was such that they essentially crowded out or something like that you would now be you know 10 ranks back from the front of the line and you, you're not going to be able to throw over 10 ranks of men with any accuracy so it's possible that that's actually what they were getting at in that war and between the lelantine war and then uh Fidon of Argos, you know this story with him. He's a tyrant who takes over Argos. Mm -hmm. He actually seems to have had royal blood and then overthrown the local aristocracy and become a tyrant. And he enjoys great military uh, prowess for a while. He actually beats the Spartans. Is this and the Battle of Hesia? The Battle of Hesia, yes. So he, they actually, he actually beats the Spartans. And we're not sure, we're not sure if, exactly how the Spartans or the Argives are armed at the time, but most likely this concept that I'm describing where now we have these shield walls forming and you can have your elite, your tyrant's elite bodyguards, essentially his, his ringers that he's buying, maybe as mercenaries even, coming in and taking up those front ranks of spearmen uh, against um, a less trained army were going to be very successful. And we see, for instance, around this time, um, this sort of tyranny spreads to Corinth, it spreads to Megara, 
And we see the overthrow of all these places by tyrants. And it, it does make me wonder if what we're really seeing is the ability for very rich men to rouse up and hire, um, you know, essentially ringers to bring in, uh, you know, troops that are very well trained to fight these local people. And then in response to that, I think that's how you get full hoplite tactics. I mean, you get, you see the, the beginning of something we'll talk about later, which is how this pushing thing got started. And I think part of the reason you start to see this mass pushing in combat is because it's not really so much pushing, but you're crowding these really quality troops with your lower quality troops and making it difficult to fight their battles. Now you have to, if you can, if you and I are, uh, you know, trained martial artists and I, I'm not very good and you're very good and we're hitting each other with spears, I have two choices. I can run away or I can move in very close. Close, now we're having a knife fight. And any martial arts artist will tell you that the difference between two combatants with swords or two combatants with knives is completely different. You have very little advantage over even somebody poorly trained in a knife fight. You're going to get cut. So I, I think that's literally where the, the concept of fighting in close, shield on shield, you know, face to face, and bringing all of your men to bear in this sort of crowded, crowded condition comes from. Yeah, I mean, and you've suggested, I guess, that the the possible place of germination for the for the phalanx hoplite warfare was was Argos, and there's a, an eponymously named grip on the on the aspis. Is that a is that a modern term, or did the ancient Greeks refer to the grip on the aspis? So they actually, grip? so the, the grip is called a porpax, but the, the shield with the grip is called an argive aspis. Oh, okay. There's been some debate over whether it actually comes from argive, uh, Argos originally, or maybe from Corinth. It may have been imported. There's, there's some evidence that the, the, the ancients thought that it originated actually in Caria over in uh, uh, Anatolia. Yeah. So it's hard to say. I mean, it's, it's possible... You might imagine, and again, this is just pure conjecture, that you have these mercenaries coming in from being bought from uh, Ionia, like Archilochus himself, who was a mercenary. These are the men who may have been spreading the new technology around. Or maybe they may have been bringing new ways of fighting, and the locals tailored their existing technology to this new way of fighting, and that is what spawned the you know origination of what we would call hoplite. It's fascinating, yeah, fascinating. So you, look, you break the book up into three general categories: the, the tools, the men, and the group. So I'd like to use those as our guides throughout the rest of the discussion. But I'd also like to make any dichotomies between Sparta and more generic hoplite arms, warriors, and tactics clear as we go along. Sure. I found it helpful throughout this series to use other city states as a foil to set the Spartans apart from the norms of the times to help the listener understand how truly alien their practices could be. We probably don't have the time to get bogged down in the various phases of evolution from 750 to 500 BCE, but I was wondering if you could describe to me the basic arms and armour of a generic non-Spartan hoplite on the eve of the Persian invasions. So up to the Persian invasions, Spartans are, are in terms of their um, panoply and the way they're fighting, not very different than the other Greeks. The difference is their social organisation. The... Um, the general uh, panoply we see is at this point actually becoming a little lighter. So before this, you could have a hoplite on the battlefield with a shield, with a bronze breastplate, with a bronze belly plate underneath the, the breastplate. He could have thigh guards around his thighs. He could have um, greaves on his shins. He could even have toe guards and instep guards. 
and ankle guards. And then uh, you'll see them uh, in the museum at Olympia. There's actually a bicep guard and a forearm guard for the right hand. Mm -hmm. And of course the helmet. So these guys could be armored from head to toe in bronze. And I think primarily that level of armor, people think that level of armor was for fighting close, but I really don't think so. I think that level of armor was primarily for standing there and having things thrown at you. <laughs> so I should, I, should, I should come clean and say that I have done this in mock combat. I've, had, I've stood there and had been shot by arrows. <laughs> even, in, even in mock combat, it's really daunting. And the thing, the thing you don't know is in, when you, if I'm fighting someone with a spear in mock combat, I pretty much know where everything's coming from. Even if I'm fighting in a phalanx, I'm not going to be hit by somebody that's that far away. I'm going to be hit by one of the guys beside me or guys behind them. But when you're, you're standing there and there's archers shooting at you, arrows are coming from all over the place. You have no idea. You really can't protect yourself with a shield because you have, there's no understanding of where, what trajectory it's coming in from. I have Especially a feeling mock if, arrows are very similar to real arrows. You, you'd be surprised. <laughs> mock arrows are very real marks. But... <laughs> But yeah, actually, the, the funniest thing about it is you, you sit there, and at one point, we were actually, we, we kneeled down behind our shields. We turtled up. And I'm not sure Hoplites actually really did that in the, early, in the archaic period. They may have done that later. But we wanted to see what it was like. And so you have this rain of arrows on your shields. And it's really mentally challenging. Even though you know that it's just mock arrows, it's really weird because you don't want to get hit with this. And it's getting hit with a paintball, you know. Uh, it still hurts, right? <laughs> you don't want it. So... <laughs> So at some point, somebody started just clanging their spear against their shield. And it surprisingly canceled out a lot of the fear because you just couldn't hear the, the clanging rain of arrows on everybody's shields. So even though you, you knew it was coming at some point, you didn't have to hear it happening all around you. You know, That's very interesting. Uh, look, yeah. there's, there's members of a certain uh, Facebook group that I, that I won't mention by name that would uh, definitely like to hear you mention something about the, a thing called the linothorax. Oh, yes. So... I wrote an article on this, actually. The, the linothorax is an interesting thing because we know it existed. We know that Greeks had linen armor. That's really not even debatable. What we don't know is exactly what it looked like. So whether it was linen or whether it was leather or whether and, and then how the linen was made. So the, the short answer I'll give you is I think we have, we have really good evidence that there was linen armor we have really good evidence that there was leather armor. We just don't know that either one of those or both is what we're seeing on vases. So there's a specific look to armor. We, we call it a tube and yoke armor because it has like a tube around the body and then what looks like a yoke comes over the shoulders. These epomedes come over the top. And that probably is either linen, leather, or both. But there's literally no way to say for sure that that's linen, leather, or both. So it's, it's, we see some other things. There's other armors. For instance, there's a, a, a famous vase with an armor that looks just like this, except it doesn't have the yoke. It has like a vest. Now, is that the linen armor? Is that the leather armor? <laughs> you know, or is it just a version of it? So it, we really don't know. And then down to construction, there's, there's a problem in that it became really popular to assume that the linen armor was made like modern fiberglass with glued layers of linen. And for that, there's really no evidence whatsoever. That was pure conjecture um, by modern scholars. So, yeah, we don't really know. There's, there are some, there are some, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's just one of many options, right? So the probably most, if you ask me right now, the most likely construction 
was a heavy woven garment through a process called uh, twining, which is this heavy like a carpet weave. And you can get really, really thick textiles from that. And you could essentially weave the whole armor in one go. And you can, you can weave multiple layers together too. This is a, we do it in modern textile making. It's called 3D weaving, but it's not, that, it's not like a modern thing. You can weave multiple layers directly together instead of actually having to you know, glue them together later, that kind of thing. And it would not surprise me if there's a whole you know, industry in this that we lost and we don't really know. The curse of uh, producing items out of biodegradable material, I suppose. Um, <laughs> yeah. for, for, the, for the Spartans, and this may be anachronistic to our discussion right now, but Plutarch records in a saying of King Agis, the younger, following the following, and I quote, when Demarvis was remarking that conjurers swallow Spartan swords because they are so small, Agis, the younger, said, all the same, the Spartans do reach the enemy with their swords. Were the Spartans known for carrying shorter swords? And in what other ways did their armaments differ from the generic hoplites you just described? So this is, this is interesting. And again, we're pushing ourselves into the following century, though. So mm. this, is, this is what's happening after the Peloponnesian War. I mean, I'm sorry, after the, the uh, Persian War, into the Peloponnesian War. And I think we do, see a couple, we do see a couple shifts. We see Spartans going to a really sort of generic-looking helmet called the Pilos, which doesn't have any face protection. It just looks like a sort of a conical pot that fit on top of their heads. And then we also see um, a shift, I think, to shorter swords. And for me, the prime evidence of this, the best evidence I have of this is some beautiful um, Theban, of all things, uh, grave steels, because the Thebans quickly adopted this Spartan fashion, it seems. They're all wearing the pillows helms on these graves. And they are um, carrying very small swords. But in one battle between the, in the famous battle of um, Coronea, between the Spartans and the uh, Thebans, at the end of the battle, the Spartans and Thebans have fought other people. But then at the end, they come across each other and they go in for the kill. And it was described by Xenophon as a, a battle like no other. And he describes shields that have actually been broken which is a rare thing in, in ancient Greece. Spears are always broken, but shields are rarely broken. And he describes the swords that are out of their sheaths and stuck in bodies. So even here we're saying sheaths, that the, for him to comment that the sword was out of its sheath tells us that, that tells us of a phase of battle that's not the opening phase of battle, right? They, they open by fighting with spears, but some really intense combat happened here. And he's telling his audience it was so intense that they actually took their, their swords out, right? So that, that's interesting. But when he says that, the word he uses is enkeridion, which is not the term for sword, usually. The term for sword is ziphos, kopis, nakeria. This is a term reserved mostly for daggers. And I think that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing a, a shift to shorter swords because the men are fighting shield on shield. Mm. I actually had a, a guy once attack me on YouTube and tell me my theory is bogus because if it were true, they'd be fighting with daggers. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, they would. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I think that's the case. So I think that they we do see a shift. I think at, at sort of the high point of this sort of really crowded levels of combat. Um, and remember, I, I really didn't go through it, but the the basic concept at least my concept of hoplite battle is that in, in that period is that men started off, they would 
come across, uh, come up to each other and they'd throw things at each other. And then at the end, after they softened everybody up, they'd charge in with their shields and, and spears to fight close in. Now that's the case for Vikings, it's the case for Saxons, it's the case for most armies. In the classical period, we see something a little different where we see men just charge directly at each other from long distances, hundreds of yards, into directly fighting with their spears. So we're talking about the, the reach of a spear now is where they would stop and fight each other. And we hear this described as a storm of spears, I think. So we'll see this, this fighting of spears. But then spears break, and they break a lot for hoplites. And I think what we see next is a case where if battle went on long enough, you end up at a point where you're fighting with your spears and your spear has a, it's like eight feet long. So it's got a lot of reach. You can't fight with a, a dagger length sword, a foot long sword, let's say, next to a guy who's using an eight foot spear because either the target's within the reach of his spear or you can't reach it with your sword. What this tells me is that there had to be phases of battle. You had to go from a spear fighting phase of battle to a shield on shield sword fighting phase of battle. And we're told by the ancients that battles would come to shield on shield. So at that point, that's when these short swords come in. And now you're fighting shield on shield, fighting with the short swords. This is where the whole notion of a thismos comes in and the push. It's not a charge into a push. It's at this point, I'm right up against your shield and I am literally me pushing against you. But the natural thing is for the guy behind me to help me not get pushed and knocked over and you know, pushed about by you while we're fighting. So we start to pack in. And honestly, I bet this happened in any historical combat where men were fighting close with swords. The difference is that if I'm getting crowded by the guys behind me and I'm fighting you, I can sort of push back a little bit on them and they'll give way. They don't want me to die. They're not going to force me up against you and let you stab me to death, right? But if you have an ascus, and this is what it comes down to, this is the big, the big difference that a hoplite has. The shape of the ascus allows you to survive getting crushed. And my analysis of the shield, that's its primary you know, function of its design. It's a great shield for stopping spears. It's a great shield for fighting other ways. It's not that it can't be used that way. But the special thing about it is that if I were to lie on the ground and you were to put this shield on top of me, you could drive a car over me and I could breathe. And that's because the shield is this hollow bowl-like shield. And if you look at the profile of the bowl, it, it's almost like an arch. And it's made in such a way that the part that sort of rests on your body, rests on your upper chest and your front part of your shoulder, and it rests on your thigh. And what that means is that the part of you that would get squished and cause you to asphyxiate in any kind of crowd disaster is your, your diaphragm and your lower chest and ribs. If I can protect that, I can get crushed all day. And we, in fact, tested this in 2015 and again in 2019. We took people and we had them come together in groups and push against each other with these SPDs or mo you know, models of SPDs. And we were able to have them push against a force meter. And we, we generated almost half a ton of peak force just by the men crowded together, leaning against each other like this. We were lucky in that I happened to be there with a group of guys who were not part of the original uh, group that I had been describing, uh, instructing on how to push. And we let them just go freestyle. 
And they pushed sort of the way that the old autismos concepts would have said, which is sort of sideways with your shoulder forward. It's actually more intuitively obvious. It's just also wrong. So they would push sideways with their shields, you know, shoulders in the shield, and they could generate uh, literally half the force of the other guys. And the other guy could have stood there all day like this. It was, it was, we were laughing through most of it because you're just getting kind of crushed, but you're in no actual danger. We had guys lifted off their feet at, at times. So <clears throat> you can generate a huge amount of force through this. And the most important thing is your shield is covering the left half of your body and your right arm is totally free. So you can fight while you're getting crushed in this little crowd. And of course, this didn't mean that you had to be squished to this level the whole combat. It could, you know, loosen up and, and get tighter. The mechanics of it, I took directly from the concepts we see in crowd disasters at soccer games or, you know, you know, sales at uh, Walmart, whatever, whatever, whatever leads people to kill each other in crowds. That's essentially the same mechanics I think we see at play here. Yeah, it's amazing. And I had to actually test it because I had people telling me, oh, you can't do that with an aspect, or, or they'd all die or this kind of stuff. So we tested it and nobody died. Nobody died. So I guess what you're suggesting is if I ever have the uh, unfortunate occurrence of winding, in another, winding up in another mosh pit in the future, I should take an aspect with me to survive. Seriously, I wish we could. I actually <laughs> thought about it. There are, there are situations that are predictably deadly. Like for instance, uh, when people, um, when um, Muslims go on the Hajj and they go to the mm -hmm. Dome of the Rock, the crowds there are so intense that almost every year people die yeah. from being crowded. And I've often thought, you know, if they had anything that could work like an aspirin, <laughs> you could keep yourself alive in that crowd. <clears throat> well, yeah, that's an interesting concept. We might just uh, leave that one there. Uh, <laughs> quickly before we move on to the next section of the, of the book and the discussion, uh, the homoeolic class were prohibited by the Lycurgan reforms from practicing any art other than war. Who do you see as the likely creators of their arms and armor? Would it be the, the perioikoi, the helotry, or would have they imported these things? So there are actually, there's another group that may have been involved as well. And they, huh. they don't get very much press. And that's the hypomayons, which are the <sighs> um, yes. disenfranchised part. The inferiors. So, right, the inferiors. So these are people who, for whatever reason, have lost their cleroi. And they've lost their, their family's land. And the biggest way that would happen is that they would mortgage that land to richer Spartans. And because they would, someone else owned the mortgage, they couldn't any longer make the payments of their mess fees. So they couldn't essentially be a true Spartan citizen anymore because they couldn't afford to go to their messes. Um, so that's another group. So it's possible that, that we have a population of them as well, who now suddenly have to find a job, right? So <laughs> So that's possible. But my guess is that um, the, we know that the Periog cities spawned a lot of very high quality craftsmen. They're one of the most famous, I can't remember his name right now, but one of the most famous sculptors in ancient Greece was uh, from a, a Laconian city. So it wasn't like these guys were, um, you know, they were not like the helots in any way. So they were, they were not serfs or anything like that. These were free people who were essentially uh, the the middle class of Sparta. Interesting, yeah, that's, and, uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and I, I think people have a uh, generally a, a in in let's say I wouldn't say it's, let's call it a, a somewhat mistaken view of Sparta in that they have this view of true chattel slavery, and mm. they think of the helots as chattel slaves. I think 
there is some of that, definitely. I mean, they, I mean, they declared war on them annually, right? So there, there's definitely some of that. But if you look at other cultures, like um, the caste system in India, for instance, yeah. Yeah. or even uh, going back to before the Spartans, there was a caste system in Egypt that was similar. Uh, and even ancient Israel has a class system with warriors and priests and, you know, the hoi polloi. So this was not uncommon to have these caste systems. So we may we may be looking at this through the eyes of the Spartiates, right? And then treating everybody else like true inferiors when in fact, you know, they all probably had very rich cultures as well. Yeah, I think the and, um, Russian serfdom is another analogy that gets dropped a fair bit. And I think that has a lot right. of credibility. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that's the thing. So <clears throat> it's it's really a, what it really is is a captive population. Mm. So they they lost in war in the time period we're talking about right now, right? So they lose the first Bessonian War, and at that point they they really are just a, uh, a sort of a, a population paying war reparations essentially. They're paying like half their their goods are going to Sparta, and then there's a second Bessonian Revolt, and that's the one that when they win that, I think that's when we really see the the harsh treatment of the. Yeah of the helots. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'd like to look at the, the culture of phalanx warfare now and what it meant to the rival city-states of the era. Um, there's three words that you, you mentioned in this section in your book, and I'd just like to dissect them first up. They are Andrea, Arete, and Patris. What do those words mean, and how are they important to the Greek citizens of the day? So Andrea is your, it comes from the word for, for man. Right, so Andros or Andrea. So and Andrea is your manliness, and Ariti is your. I think you best describe it as sort of as your valor, and your Patrios is your your like patriotic. It's your sort of your uh, fealty to your people, to your country, or in this case, your polis. Right. So I think for a Spartan. It would actually be the last term, the patria, that would be the most important, right? They 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 actually subsume the rest of it. So if, actually, I have a great example because I happen to have a quote of Tarteus lying around here somewhere, and he um, <clears throat> it's actually quite cool because he describes um, the. I'm going to turn over to look at my other computer. It's he describes um, the uh, sort of. What makes a, a good man, essentially, right? And I'll read it to you, the whole quote. It said, I would neither call a man, uh, or put it, or I would neither call a man to mind nor put him in my tail for prowess in the race or in wrestling, not even had he the statue and strength of a cyclops and surpassed the swiftness, swiftness of the Thracian north wind, nor were he a comelier man than Tithnus, uh, or richer than Midas or Sinras. Nor though he were a greater king than Pelops, son of Tantalus, and had Adrastus's suaveness of tongue, <laughs> nor yet though all the fame were his, save for warlike strength. For, for a man is not good in war if he had not endured the sight of bloody slaughter and stood nigh and reached forth to strike the foe. Then that was a limitation of his worth. So, mm. what he's saying there is all of your Andrea, the, the things that make you personally. You know, give you personal glory, unimportant. Yeah. What's important is that you, when their city needs you, you'll show up and you'll fight. Mm -hmm. Right. That that is the key to a spark. And essentially, this is this is Tertius's propaganda. Right. We can see in Tertius the beginnings of the ethos that Spartans will develop and 
essentially dine out on for a long time to come, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I guarantee you that there are Spartans, Spartan, you can see it sometimes. You, you can just imagine these Spartans who are going abroad as mercenaries yeah. and, you know, just playing up the Spartan thing to the hilt. You know, shave your mustache before you leave. I mean, that, I mean, that kind of stuff, right? Boil your hair. And, yeah, exactly. And of course, that's one of our problems because that feeds into what they call the mirage of, mm. of the Spartans, right? So yeah. we can't really know what a Spartan was like because they never really show us what the Spartans are like. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, we they're very interested. They want us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they were just as interested, right, in promoting that sort of image of invincibility. It helped them greatly on right. the battlefield for sure. So. I guess that's you're linking to Taius with the the early development of martial spirit within Sparta, and I guess the time that he was writing was a, a period during the uh, the early stages, possibly of the Second Mycenaean War, when things were going really badly for the Spartans, right. mainly right. due to the Mycenaean king's brilliance, uh, Aristomenes, I think his name was. So, mm -hmm. do you do you do you see Tertius as sort of crucial to that to that latter development of, of the legendary I invincibility? I see Tertius as sort of a an outgrowth of what must have been happening in Sparta, right? So it's not like Tertius came and changed everyone's mind and yay, we win. Yeah. It's more like, <laughs> more like the, the nation is undergoing, the polis is undergoing a radical cultural change in order to meet the demands of this war while they also have, you know, helots all over the place in Laconia that they have to take you know, into consideration, right? And the Periokoi. So it's, it's, it's obvious that this is, they're becoming a warrior caste of their own society. Mm. And if you're going to be a warrior caste, you better be a warrior caste, right? Yeah. So you, you have to really step it up and at least project yourself as, um, you can think of it this way. So in, in, if you have a, a, an earlier setting where you have sort of big men who became leaders, right? They became leaders because they were tougher than everybody else and they could acquire goods and give them out, that kind of thing. You can sort of see that writ large on a political sense where these the Spartans themselves now have to all be or project a toughness that speaks for itself, right? Yeah, so yeah. That, that allows them to be the arbiters of giving out goods and, and uh, privileges and things like that. Yeah, yeah, you got to have that warrior ethos, a bit like the, the Navy SEALs of the modern era, I suppose, you know, right. that perception of, of, of bravery and invincibility. But, but but almost I, I, it's funny because one of the things that I actually uh, try to dissuade is the idea that Sparta was like for instance if you read Pressfield's novels mm. I love Pressfield's novels but yeah. his Spartans read like you're in a marine barracks in 1942 <laughs> right really I mean I imagine Spartans probably were a lot more like a English prep school meets yeah. you know Prussian army you know, but these are these guys all were these were not conscript guys from Brooklyn. These were these were the the Prussian nobles of their day, right? These guys were uh, the the top of the top. What's odd is that rather than the sort of uh, almost effete mannerisms you would see in English nobility, they did exactly the opposite. They were vying to look as shabby. <laughs> you know, I mean that was that was the the ethos of the day. That's, that's why, you know, we're, we're told they were a nation of philosophers Yeah. because the philosophers, the sophists are running around talking about giving up all of your, you know, meaningless worldly possessions and working on the self. And these guys, at least outwardly, were projecting that ideal because they were vying with each other to give up publicly 
their worldly possessions that way, which unfortunately they didn't do at home so well. Yeah, yeah. See, that's that's <laughs> what makes them fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. And when, when money consisted of iron spits, it was really easy to keep everybody even. But the moment you start to have foreign money pour in, that's the end of the ability to keep things even. Yeah. I don't want to put too much blame at the feet of Lysander, but he's probably my least favorite Spartan. And I'll, I'll eventually <laughs> get to, to him and his deeds of uh, bringing wealth within the city. Now, Moving on to the general physicality of war in ancient Greece and understanding that during the Archaic Age, there isn't a lot of evidence for professional soldiering outside of Sparta. Can you give us an idea of what type of physical training, direct or indirect, was performed by the average citizen militia? I break training up into um, a couple of separate areas. For instance, there's the personal training that a lot of the people did, which was uh, equivalent to us working out today. So guys would do things like um, they would have, uh, they would go hunting, right? That would allow you to march through the hills and sort of build up your own personal um, strength and your personal endurance. And then hunting itself, of course, was a great training aid for war because you had to, back then they would like run boars into nets, for instance, things like that. So you had to strategize with others and work together. And more importantly, you had to actually kill something. And this shouldn't be, just cast aside too quickly. The idea that you could take a life and the blood squirts on you. And I mean, this is a, a thing that's not really very easy for a human being. So even killing boar and anything really. Uh, but then the other level of training beyond that is the group training. And for most of Greece, I think that the group training took the form of group dances. And we see that in Sparta, especially. Matter of fact, it's around the same time, actually, that they have just, um, they've lost to the Argives, and now they come back and they beat the Argives again. And then we see the uh, Gymnopedia being um, instituted in at Sparta. This is the, the dance of the naked youths, mm. right? Mm. So the group dancing, it's these festivals, the Carnia, these, these festivals where you have all day long out in the heat group dances. We can't really, we don't really even know what, what this looked like, right? But we can imagine that they were big groups of people doing these dances. And we know for sure, for instance, there's a, a famous example, Agaselios, uh, who didn't know he was going to become king. He later on became king. He was lame in, in his foot. His, I think it was the right foot he was lame. And we're told by Xenophon that he was in a big choral dance, a big group dance, and he was hidden in the back because he didn't look too good. Mm -hmm. So, so these dances were dense enough with men that you could hide in the back of them, right? So it gives you an idea that these were essentially army unit sized groups that are doing these dances and dancing in a group like this is, is the first step to moving in a group and marching in a group. And these kind of things. I always tell everybody, by the way, I've taught a lot of people basic Spartan drill, which is so easy. I can't even tell you. I can teach a group of people Spartan drill in about half hour, 40 minutes. But I could, in five minutes, I could walk into a, like a, a Broadway cattle call of dancers. And in five minutes, I could have them do all Spartan drill because they know exactly how to move their bodies and they're used to moving in unison. So I think that, that the group dancing that they did was primary, uh, was a primary means of, of training. And then, on top of all of that, they had weapons dances, sort of what they call the Pyrrhic dances. And these were dances in armor, which were probably not that different than some early forms of kata, of 
martial arts. So if you look at, you sort of move away from the, the, the Chinese martial arts, which the kata is sort of more linear to some of the Indian martial arts, which were precursors for the, the Shaolin, you have things that look much more like just dancing. And that's probably what the Pyrrhic dances look like. Yeah, interesting. I guess uh, just on the, the Spartan training and, and indirect methods, I guess, you know, there's, there's definitely a synergy there between the, the choral dancing and moving in, in formation in hoplite warfare. But uh, I read something interesting in your book that I, I hadn't actually come across before. And uh, I was wondering if you'd tell me a little bit about the, the Svetomachia or the, or the battle ball game and how that relates to ah, yeah, training. So, so there, there were a number of games. Now, the thing we don't know for sure is we don't know if all of these games are ancient. Because there's one game in particular, the game of the plane tree fields, that was, that was almost you know, exactly what you would do if you were trying to train your youth to fight in a combat which had some sort of you know, pushing match going on. Because the men would line up on an island, or the boys would line up on an island in two teams, like football, and they would push each other or fight each other until one side was off the island. And... We know this, this, the attestations for it come from the Hellenistic period. So we can't be sure that it's ancient, but I have a feeling it probably is. And Sferomachia was another one. Sferomachia was, it looked like, imagine if you had a volleyball game going over the top of two American football lines going at it. That's kind of what that looked like. It's, it's a weird game. And actually, there is a game that's interesting that um, it's played till today in Florence called... Um, Oh, what's it called? Storico. And it is kind of like, it looks like the ancestor of a football game where you have a, a lineman, but instead of just blocking, they're beating the heck out of each other. So they're pushing each other and they're wrestling on the ground and they're punching each other. And while that's going on, somebody is trying to run around them with a ball and get into a, an end zone, essentially. And um, so you can imagine something like that where you have sheer combat all-out combat going on between the youth playing and then the men too playing these games um but obviously it's supposed to be non-lethal and uh, that would be quite good training for anything that happens on a battlefield i'm getting visions of uh rugger hires salute of the jugger in my mind now. yeah yeah, no, yeah i always think about that yeah yeah, yeah that's, that's exactly <laughs> right. one of our favorite movies yeah. oh underrated heavily underrated yeah. um yeah. i guess lastly for the warriors themselves i'd I'd like to understand a little bit more of the psychology of, of phalanx warfare. What did it take mentally to stand, as Tertius puts it, shield to shield and crest to crest and face down an opposing phalanx? So can you encapsulate that, 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 that manliness, that Andrea that it took to, to participate in that sort of combat? So I can, and there's actually, there's a couple layers to it. So there's the layer to standing there and having things shot at you. And that's, that's the one part of combat that's actually very similar to modern combat. So you can look at modern, you know, or even back to like World War One, where you were, you were stuck sitting there under shelling, for instance. That's the same kind of thing, right? So it's invisible death. It's coming at you from some direction you can't predict. And you're just standing there through it. And that takes a certain kind of mental toughness to just not run away at that point. That's sort of the, the equivalent that modern combat actually handles fairly well. The, the next level is the ability to stand right in front of someone with a razor sharp weapon and kill them or be killed by them. And that is something that's really difficult to, you know, we try to recreate these things in recreating the combat just to get, uh, to make it as real as possible. And there's, there really is no way to do that. And one of the problems that you have in 
attempting to do mock combat is that the weapons don't react the same way. So for instance, I can tell you right now, if you talk to guys who do um, SCA combat or other things like that, they spend half their time with their speed pushing the other shields out of the way. So you push a shield out of the way and then you try to stab around it. If you push my shield with the spear that I use with a razor point, you're stuck in my shield and that's the end of your spear and you're getting killed. So that's not even something that's an option. So these guys would have been standing toe to toe. And I always try to explain to people, they would be spending most of their time hiding, right? You, you probably spent most of your time behind your shield and then you would flick out a quick jab. Only if you saw a real opening, would you commit your whole body to a strike? Because in the commission of your whole body to a strike, you're opening yourself up to a counter strike. Mm. And I mean, the scariest times when you were at Hoplite would be if you actually did a full strike where you actually extended your arm all the way out and your shoulder out over your shield, or if the guy next to you died, because suddenly the whole part of your body is exposed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the most comforting feelings in a, in a phalanx, by the way, is that moment all the shield, all the spears come down and you're now surrounded by, you know, four or eight spears around your head. And it's really quite comforting because it's, it has a, a safety that it adds. It's hard to get hit by spears coming from the side because there's lots of spears around you blocking those. The guy behind me, my guess is his primary job was helping me keep that spear off my head yeah. from somebody else. And in our tests, I did not expect this, but actually the third rank also can kill the enemy first rank. And what they would do is they would, um, they would actually let the spear slide in their hands to get the maximum reach out of it. And because they were so far back, it was hard for the first fighter on the other side to actually predict when that was going to happen. So they were actually pretty, pretty lethal. But um, I would say at least the first two ranks definitely were involved in, in combat like this, and probably yeah. the third was involved as well. It's amazing, amazing. So let's, uh, let's turn to our final topic now, that of the phalanx. Well, let me, let me just say one, yeah, let me say one more thing, because I meant to go to further. So now if you take it further to that sword on sword phase. Mm -hmm. Now you're essentially in a knife fight and you have to bind up the enemy's sword really quick. Otherwise you're going to get stabbed. But when this pushing starts, we, in our tests, this is the one thing that we can actually test fairly accurately because um, pushing is pushing. So we don't have to actually kill anybody in the pushing part. So for the guys in the front, yeah, they're, they're not getting it accurately because they'd be getting stabbed at. But if you're in the middle somewhere, it's probably very similar to what the Greeks experienced. And we had people who just mentally were really uh, daunted by this. And, and it's, it, I'm always in the front because I'm holding the uh, meter that's recording the force. But we have people who are like stuck in the middle of this behind me and you're getting sort of hit on the head by your own people's spears and you can't move. So imagine being held in place and things are hitting you in the head. It's really, it takes a mental toughness just not to freak out. I mean, you, you can't be claustrophobic at all, right? And quite frankly, you can't be homophobic at all because you're face to face, practically kissing the guy next to you, smelling the sardines he had for lunch, right? So this is a this is a type of warfare that um, you you really have to uh, be mentally prepared for. If you found yourself in this by accident, I my guess is that some armies like the Persians found themselves in this by accident against this country. <laughs> you were in trouble because if you didn't know this was coming this was a sign that you're losing this battle, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's fantastic insight to be able to actually, you know, mock these battles up. And I guess you get a real, I mean, in the press of the combat, the mock combat as it might be, you'd still get a real sense for the, for the psychology and the feeling of the warfare, especially 
Were you, do you wear the Corinthian-style helmet for these events? So it depends on the test. So if we're doing full mock combat, then we have to be wearing full HEMA protection, so historical yeah. European martial arts protection, which is like a really heavy gauge fencing mask yeah, yeah, and yeah. gauntlets. Yeah. And uh, when we did this kind of testing, we had a we had a ton of marshals around. So these you know guys who would be watching to stop, and we stopped combat all the time. So um, a rubber point would fall off of a spear, everything stops. And these guys I was working with were so good that everything immediately stopped. There was never any problem. And because of that, we'd had nobody injured. Uh, my fear is that this kind of thing will catch on and groups that don't know what they're doing will try to do this because they'll get hurt. It's uh, it's really quite dangerous, well, especially at Christmas. We can uh, put the link to your blog up on the on the website, and if people want to uh, indulge, then that's uh, that's their own problem. But we hear right, right now yeah. that the Promarcos Paul Bardonius does not endorse that behaviour in an unsupervised <laughs> environment. <laughs> so yeah, finally, definitely. we'll go to the the, the phalanx itself. And um, look, as I've, as I've mentioned, this show is still in that prehistoric period for good accounts of Spartan warfare, and I'm really loath to to go over anything that I intend to, to do in detail in the future, but. What do you say about me setting the scene for a battle that, that never was and helping me walk through it to give the listeners a little taste of, of hoplites of war? Sure. Right. So we'll set the battle not far north from the modern Peloponnesian town of Tripolis on the fields outside of Mantinea, a place well-versed in the struggles of war, especially for the Spartans. Um, an invading force made up by an alliance of Argives and Athenians is met by a Spartan army with a contingent from Tegea. The year is 500 BCE, and each army consists of 10,000 hoplites with respective skirmishes and light cavalry. How would such an invading force array itself against the Spartans? So in that date, what we would, what we would see is um, different units, taxis, would be brought to the field. Now, their, their organization would be based in that date probably mostly along um, civic or family lines. So you would have a clan that clan would marshal on the field and then either they would march to the field in an already predetermined set, almost like, you know, the different bands march at the uh, May Day Parade or something, mm -hmm. right? So you have all the bands are, are units into themselves, but they know where they first walk out from, or they would just all find themselves on the battlefield and then, and then, but whichever way it happened, uh, you would have these different units just line up alongside each other, just like I said for th uh, for uh, Thucydides earlier. So the para the uh, parataxis, and the units themselves would be all hoplites in the front, and probably lighter troops behind at this date. And then um, you would have your cavalry off on the wings, and your battle would consist of the men marching up to each other, and then throwing spears at each other. Each hoplite probably carried uh, a war spear and a secondary throwing spear uh, around this date. Now, this, this date is a little late, so they may have already been trans transitioning to hoplites um, getting away from the second throwing spear, but let's assume it's more of an archaic battle. They would have walked up with the throwing spear, thrown spears at each other for a while, probably used a lot of harsh language, and, and what might happen is maybe one of the units might move forward and start to actually fight. And when that happened, uh, you might see them just fight and move back, or you might see everybody drawn into that advance. So for instance, at Plataea, and allies are standing on a hill getting shot by Persians with arrows, and nobody's moving. And in, 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 in the tale, they're waiting for the, the sacrifices to come back, 
but most likely they're waiting for some more allies to show up because the Corinthians were, were there as well. And eventually one of the Tegeans just has enough and he can't stand just being hit with arrows. So he runs off and that precipitates this massive charge where everybody, suddenly, suddenly the omens are good and, and everyone runs to battle, right? So, so that's sort of a, a transition. You can see how, when I say there's a transition in battle, it's not like, hey, now let's go fight with spears. It can literally be just one guy could start the whole process rolling. And actually, one of the things that I talk about in the book, and I, I talk about in a chapter I just recently wrote as well, is the way in which that self-organization I talked about plays into fear in combat. So you can have a situation where um, you could have an individual who's afraid and that fear could cause them to do something that looks heroic, like running at the enemy. And the interaction between him and the men around him is such that that now causes them to move forward and you have a, a, a charge start. But the same process happens in reverse. And I, actually, it's funny because when I was first describing this, I had a military man tell me that it could never work because you know, he went through all the things that had to happen for you know, a charge. Like you had to have uh, the unison of motion and you had to have people going off at the same time, all this to make a charge happen. And I asked him, who gives the order to route? Because when a route happens, it's really the same process in reverse. You have somebody causes the break, somebody like the Tejian, but now it's a, a Tejian in the rear rank and he runs away. And when he runs away, somebody else runs away. And then that makes those around them more shaky then they run away. So that whole process of the charge and the reverse, the route can also be organized in that manner. So when the when the, the two phalanxes are advancing or charging towards one another, Thucydides, I think, is the first one to write down that formation is generally tended to what is called a rightward drift or a right, rightward shift. Mm -hmm. Now, he's a general and a historian. Uh, I remember I fought in the Peloponnesian War against one of my personal heroes, Brasidas. Uh, but in the book, you challenge this claim by suggesting that perhaps it was more of a tactic to, to get around and encircle the, the opposing force rather than a natural sort of shift to the rightward side. Is that, is that the case as you see it? Let me go two ways with that because um, I have two, there's two feelings about that. One is that what I think is happening with the, the shift is that, uh, well, uh, the, the claim that, the, that you'll see often is that the shift happened because the men were, and this goes back to the, the ancient authors, the men were trying to get closer to the men next to them um, to cover their naked side, their right side. And the idea that the whole line shifted to the right may have been a mistake. What you may have seen, because this is what I see all the time when we do this, mm. is that rather than the whole line shifting to the right, the line compresses. So if you imagine if the line compresses towards the right on both sides, you end up with an overlap that would be almost impossible to tell from shifting the whole line to the right, especially if it did shift a little to the right, right? Mm -hmm. So you have this combination of compressing and shifting. And if you're the guy on the right, you spend your whole time with your shield <laughs> nudging the guy next to you back because they're constantly pushing you uh, to the right and everyone's constantly compressing to the right. Now, on top of this, there's a problem in that when you are walking, and if you just try this sometime, just walk and then turn your left side forward. It becomes really hard to walk straight. If you're not actually looking at something on the horizon and trying to walk in a straight line, you will start to veer to the right because mm. half your body has turned that way. And this, this is not something that I came up with. This was actually suggested by, I think it was Fraser, 
over a century ago. And I think it's true. I think that um, part of the problem is that you veer just because you're trying to hold a shield up in front of you and you really can't avoid that. But then on top of that, there is the notion that some armies were um, intentionally trying to outflank the other. So that's um, what they would have called cyclosis. So cyclosis is when we see a Spartan army, and Spartans became masters of this, but they didn't really originate this. This happened probably much earlier as well, but they became really masters of this. Spartans would move around the, um, the left flank of their enemies, and then they would roll up the flank and go back the other way and then take each, usually they wouldn't have to even fight because the armies would just break as they came upon them. Now, this is difficult to do though for most armies of the day. And that's because most armies had almost no discipline to actually pull something like this off. And the, the best example I can give you of this is there's um, in the Battle of Mantinea where the Athenians are fighting the, the Spartans. Because the Spartans were, we, we credit the Spartans with having these great small unit skills. And they, they did, but almost every time they tried to do something tricky with their small units, it failed. And in this case, they created a whole gap in the middle of their line and they told another unit to go fill that gap and the unit didn't. So they had a huge gap in the middle of their line. And the picked troops of the Argives, now the Argives had a thousand picked troops who were specifically like anti-Spartans in a sense that they were, they were paid by the state. So they were supposed to be training up to higher levels or, or at least be tougher in some way than the normal troops. They ran right through this gap and off the battlefield. Right? So <laughs> if they had turned left, or, or if they had turned into the Spartans, they would have destroyed the Spartan army because there's no Spartan army that could have fought uh, at this point. They would have been taken in the rear, right? Hmm. They didn't. They didn't for a couple of reasons. One, it's not so simple to turn, to get a group of men to turn, right? So they didn't have any, any real training to do this turn. And the other thing is, if you're in the middle of an army and you turn, it's different than being on the flank of an army because there's always somebody behind you. So if you take them in the rear, you're presenting your rear potentially to someone as well. And that's one of that's If you ever wonder why light troops alone can help keep hoplites from flanking, it's because the hoplites don't want to turn their backs on the light troops. Even the light troops can't fight them toe to toe. The hoplites don't want to turn their back on them, right? So this is, this is something that I think most of the armies of this day couldn't really do, this sort of, breaking through a line and, and rolling it up. But some could, some could. I mean, we see uh, the, the other examples at Delian where we have the um, Athenians come around both flanks of the um, Thespian uh, unit and end up fighting each other behind the other Thespian unit. So they come around both flanks and hit each other and kill each other. So <laughs> I'll show you right there, there was no great, I'll show you two things. There was no great training for doing this. It also show you that hoplites didn't have giant heraldic signs on their shields that told you who they were. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. they wouldn't have just killed each other this way. Yeah. Right? The very latter advent. We should make it clear for the listeners that the the Battle of Mantinea you were describing was one in the the Peloponnesian War. And I made the mistake of uh, creating a mythical battle that very closely echoed one that happened seventy years after, roughly seventy years after there. So back to our battle. The the Athena-Argive alliance is engaged in the phalanx with the, the Spartan and Tegeans, and uh, they've, a period of Doratismos has, has occurred whereby they're, they're going at each other with the spears, the spears are shattering, they're at each other with spike butts and, and swords, and Othismos is beginning. 
and the Spartans have begun to encircle from the right the opposing force and naturally a rout occurred. What did a rout look like in that sort of battle? Ah, see, this is, this is a, an interesting thing because this is something, in many ways, this is what hoplite battle is all about. So let's say they, they had either got a, a thismos, a build on shield and pushing and one side, one unit broke, or easier yet, the Spartans came around with Cyclosis and they caused a rout. Often, oddly enough, many times, um, especially against the Spartans, the units wouldn't even stand. So they'd be running by the time the, the, the uh, hoplites got there. And I think that's one of the reasons they charge, by the way. We talk why they charge. A lot of it was psychological. It's easier to run into battle mentally than to walk. Mm. Uh, but the other thing is you had to reform at the end of that charge and get ready. It was almost like a race to see who could get their unit shut out quick enough to start that spear fighting. And you can imagine that if you were that front rank and got there and the guys behind you weren't getting there that quick, you wouldn't stand very long, right? You'd get out. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a possibility too. But so let's say that one side now breaks. Now we have the, the, the trophy, right? This is where the, the, the turning, this is where one side is broken and left the field. And that's why they put up a, a trophy literally at that point. And what happens next is that you chase. And here is where all those light troops come in. Yeah. and the cavalry and the other groups. Because, for instance, I can't remember the author, but there's an ancient author who says you can win a battle, you can basically beat the enemy with hoplites, but you can't win a real battle without light troops and cavalry because you can't chase them down, mm-hmm. essentially. Is what he's saying. And the, the next step is really the horrific stage for a hoplite. So you are running away, right? You're throwing your shield away sometimes. You're getting hunted down. Tertius has a whole couplet where he talks about you know, we know what it's like to defeat the enemy and chase them. And we know what it's like to be defeated and run. And essentially, how much sweeter is it not to be the guy getting the spear in your back, you know? <laughs> and and um, so at this point, something interesting happens, though, because especially in, we know from the later battles in the, in the uh, 5th century, uh, Socrates, for instance, does this famously. And that you could save yourself in this route sometimes if you made a stand. So if all the men around you were melting and running away and throwing their shields away and you stood with a small group of men, why would they stop and fight you? Especially the light troops, right? The, the horse, they'd, they'd run after the, the other guys running away. And we have this interesting little snippet that comes out of Plato where he tells us that it is at this point in the battle where the, the teachings of the haplomachoi or the sort of martial arts masters comes in. As though they're not that important in the actual battle where you're kind of stuck together and you're squished together. There's not all that much cool martial arts you can do. But now when you find yourself one-on-one or you find yourself in small groups, fighting small groups, now all that training becomes crucial and, and worthwhile. It's almost so a flip, it's, isn't it, from the Black yeah. Age hero- heroism, you know, soul, soul warriors <laughs> yeah. fighting, you know. Yeah, that's, but that's the thing that's interesting. So when, when I hear these ideas like, oh, well, a ha- I, an aspect was only good for group warfare or these kind of things, they don't understand that it had to be good for every stage of the warfare, mm. right? So it had, the shield had to work when you were stuck in a phalanx, but it had to work when you were, you and Socrates, shield, shoulder to shoulder, you know, standing on a battlefield as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, do you briefly have any sort of average casualty figures for, for these types of battles, like for the winners and the losers, like in percentage you know, or something I, like that? I think you got me on the spot here because <laughs> it then worked out, and I think it's like 5% for the winners and yeah. maybe... 
maybe 10 or 15 for the losers in the battles. Yeah. Uh, the, the 5%, I'm pretty sure about the 10 or 15, I can't remember which it is. But the uh, this is why it's important, right? So if you imagine that most of the casualties for the 5% of the winners come from the actual combat, mm -hmm. the discrepancy between them is the men who are chased down in the uh, in the route. Yeah, yeah. And well, so that's, like that's when the real death happens. Yeah, but not extremely high figures. But when you consider that these soldiers were were farmers or potters or yeah. you know blacksmiths in their daily lives, this would have left a massive hole in the in the Athenian or Athenian or Theban polis. You know, as far as their yeah. you know the service of their, their citizens goes on a day to day basis. There, that was great, Paul. Um, now, before we wrap it up, I suppose is there uh, anything else pertinent that you'd like to add to the discussion? I don't know. Let me think. Is there anything else pertinent? So this this conversation taking place mostly in the 6th century mm. is an interesting one because we see that that real transition happening in the mid-7th century to hoplites, as I described them sort of as shield walls like Saxon or Viking shield walls. And then by the end of the 6th century, we start to see a reaction to the Persians. So you see things like um, shield aprons, you know, those, those um, textile or leather things hanging from shields. We see that happening in, in Ionia beginning to, you know, and then moving to Greece. And we see that as part of um, a response probably to Persian archery. So now you have a situation where these Persians are coming out and, you know, into your <laughs> military world. And they're also fighting, people don't realize they're also fighting a shield wall, but their shield wall is one or two ranks of very big shields that they could actually stand on kickstands and stand behind it and use really effective missile combat. Hmm. Whereas as a hoplite, you're probably standing in four, maybe eight at the most ranks of hoplites and your slingers and your javelin and your guys with bows that were nowhere near as strong as the Persian bows are shooting over the top of you at this stage. So one of the things that happens in the Persian Wars, I think, and I've never really seen this dealt with at length, is you see sort of a trauma where the light troops that were part of the phalanx or part of the taxis that make up this parataxis failed them miserably. They really can't stand toe to toe with the Persians and have a missile battle. And I think you see things like this, this um, shield apron, but you also see around this date, we see the rise of the Hoplitodromos, the run in armor. Yeah. And that, that I think is the mainland Greeks response to dealing with Persians, essentially. We see it happen spontaneously with that Teji and at Plataea. You have to run through, you have to run the gauntlet right through the Persian archery. And that's your only hope. But once you get to the end, then you can fight them. You can fight your battle, right? But you, can't, you cannot stand there and have a missile duel with troops who have really excellent archers and you have really crappy archers and you know naked guys throwing uh, spears. And when I say naked, I mean it in the, in the yeah. technical <laughs> It's a fantastic uh, image to, to finish things yeah. on, Paul. A, a naked Tajian running the, <laughs> the, the Persian ranks of Plataea there. Uh, <laughs> I had a lot of fun. Um, I can't thank you enough for making the time to come on the show and give it some, some much-needed authenticity. Your yeah, help is, is deeply appreciated. Well, thank you very much. Anytime. If uh, anyone's interested in learning more from Paul, I can't recommend his book, Hoplites at War, a comprehensive analysis for heavy infantry, infantry combat in the Greek world enough. It's available in paperback and ebook off Amazon. And to my dear listeners, as always, Take good care and speak soon. See you later, Paul. Thank you very much. The Spartan History Podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Steve and his guest. Anytime. Uh
that. That was great, mate. That was excellent. Fantastic. Uh, I apologise for, for not getting into the, the fifth century and the fourth century a little bit more, but... Um, no, no, it's fine. Really teasing it out with the show. I sort of started off, you know, in the Bronze Age, so to speak, and 23 episodes in, I'm still sort of, you know, mid-sixth, seventh century at this stage. So, um, but by all means, if you'd be interested in coming back on in the future, I'd love to sure. get your analysis of, um, you know, some of the big battles like, yeah, Plataea, obviously, and Mathenia, um, and even even Lutra, where I'm probably going to finish this show. Sure, sure. Yeah. I just wrote a I just wrote a thing on on uh, Platea. I wrote a chapter on Platea, so we could talk about that. So you're writing a book, are you? Uh, I just wrote a chapter for a different book. You know, oh, you, okay. probably, you probably know Nick Secunda, the, the author who does yeah. a lot of yeah. stuff. Yeah. So he wrote he uh, edited a book on Platea for the anniversary, and I just did a chapter for that uh, with another author on uh, the face of battle at Platea. Was the name of the oh wow. The, yeah, it's really good. I, I don't know when it comes out, though, but I'll, I'll definitely ship you over a copy or okay. uh, at least tell you where it is, yeah? Oh, that'll be fantastic. Well, I'll, yeah, I'll definitely yeah, reach out when, I, when I'm there. I'm not sure exactly when that'll be. I'm sort of, you know, trying not to leave anything behind as I'm, as I'm going sure. through. But, um, Take your yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not? Well, you know, everybody wants to talk about the, obviously, 300. Sure. That's the, the sexy part. Actually, but. as as a laconophile, I have uh, I have a different take on Mantinea, the third Mantinea, whatever it was, second Mantinea yeah. with the, uh, the, my take is that um, I think the Spartans specifically targeted um, Epaminondas. I think, I think they, because the, the thing that's key to me is that they did not form up opposite the, the uh, Thebans, the Mantineans did. Mm. And that, that changed the whole battle because what happened now is the Thebans hit the Mantineans, not the Spartans. And they may have overlapped the Spartans a little bit, but there were still Spartans on their flank. And when they brushed aside the Mantineans, now they're, they were getting flanked by whatever Spartans stood there. Mm. And I think that's, that's the best explanation, I think, for why the battle was inconclusive. Because it didn't ha nothing happened. Like the, the, the Thebans could go that far and no more because yeah. they couldn't keep moving or they get taken to the flank. Yeah. So the whole battle sort of just degenerated and then all of Greece... Learned nothing from the battle, you know. <laughs> it was really one of those battles, wasn't it? Titanic sort of yeah. struggle that really had no result of, of benefit for either side. Well, you see that. that I mean, essentially, that's where Xenophon ends, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah. that did." Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, you go into it in quite quite a lot of detail in the book, and it was a, a fascinating expose on the on the battle. I, I I've read Xenophon, but obviously I haven't sort of delved into the depths. And it was great to to read it in the in the book. There, it really brought it to life in my mind, and um, oh, you can actually you. see the you know the Spartans going this way, the Mantineans doing this, the Thebans doing mm -hmm. this. It really sort of they teased it apart. I'm sort of, I'm amazed at how you got that sort of detail out of the sources. It's so it's truly brilliant. But there are we have a couple of sources. I, uh, what I did is I just tried to reconcile them. So like what. Yeah. What reconciles all these sources together? And then that, that's where I came up with it. Yeah. But when you look at the Thebans, for instance, the Thebans are really the ones who, who push the depth in the phalanx. Yeah. So yeah. this thing that we call a thismos, at the end of the day, it's something that hoplites did, but it was really the Thebans at the end who really made it a, a more of a focus of their, their warfare by making everything deep. So going back to Delium, you can see why. They're up on top of the hill and they're trying to break through a line. So they make their army very deep. Um, in all of the battles after that, I don't, I don't think we ever see the Thebes less than 25 ranks deep, even though they don't tell us what there are. For instance, Xenophon tells us that he gives us the impression that they were more than 16 because he tells us that they violated the treaty to stop at 16. Yeah. So they, they were probably, they were probably 24 ranks deep so in there as well. Can you explain actually just quickly, like I've always, I've read that the, the sacred band ranked itself 50 deep. But 
being a band right. of three hundred soldiers, that's only six miles that? wild. Like it doesn't. It, it's, I mean, yeah, it's I like a like a, a nuclear missile penetrating the, the right so, flank there. So probably. So what happened to understand to understand Lutra, you have to understand Tagira, and at uh, Tagira, which is an earlier battle, uh -huh. uh, the Spartans were try just trying to stop the Thebans from breaking away, essentially, and the Spartan the Thebans were trying to break through them. And so the Spartans formed up in probably 12 ranks, and the Thebans formed up probably 24, 25 ranks uh, of the sacred band, and they just cut through them. And then when they cut through them, though, then the Spartans panicked, and the Spartans essentially broke. Now, the same thing actually happens at Mantine, the, the, uh, at, uh, sorry, at Coronia. Mm -hmm. The Thebans do get through the Spartans, but by that point, they, they fight their way through and they're so beaten up that it's not, there's no victory in that because they don't even try to make a stand. They run for their lives, essentially. So even though they break through, it's no, of no consequence. But when they break through at Tagira, it is, does have a consequence. And more importantly, when you see what happens at Lutra, and Lutra, for whatever reason, there's different theories on exactly what was happening, but whatever reason, the Spartans were disordered. And Pelopidas saw that. Now, he, he didn't have his uh, 300... Uh, Arrayed deep, they were probably arrayed again at a normal depth, twelve, maybe even twenty-four, whatever they were. But when he sees this happening, he charges and he runs right into them. He runs right into where the king is, and he hits them hard. And he, his thought is, if just like a Tagir, if I hit one unit and break that one unit, especially if it's the head of the snake, as they said, then I can, I can cause a rout. And that's essentially what the whole demon strategy turned into. Everyone else then followed the sacred band. So I think what we see is again like that Tajian who runs. We have the we have the sacred band. I mean, you can imagine they're standing behind him, and the plan was to advance with the sacred band probably as the front unit. But he goes off on his own, and then they all follow him. Yeah. So when this hits, when I look at that battle, I, I read it as the rest of the Spartan line, the rest of the Lacedaemonian line, are essentially just watching them fight. There's almost no other combat going on. And I think in here you know, we talk about how some parts of the line can fight and some not. Hmm. This was unheard of that they were just they were just getting beaten on this very narrow front by the Thebans. But the Thebans knew that if they could keep if they could beat them there, nobody else would matter because they would all disintegrate. And that's what they did. Yeah. So yeah. you know, a thousand, I think it's what, a thousand or four thousand, however many Spartans, I think a thousand Spartans die yeah. in that battle. <clears throat> and it was no quick battle. I'm often, I'm often asked, how could there be 50 ranks versus 12 ranks and they don't just get pushed off the field? Hmm. But if you understand the data that I show in the book, it can't happen because over about 16 ranks, you're not really adding that much more strength. Uh, so it's really like 12 ranks versus 16 decremental. Ranks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the battle went up for a long time. Now, it's a huge advantage to have 50 ranks behind you because it's like a wall. So you can't get pushed back very much, but you also don't get their help pushing forward. Oh, even so psychologically. Looking from the yeah, Spartan yeah. perspective, like, sure. oh my God, how many of these guys have I got to kill? What am I doing? Yeah, yeah. What a waste. Yeah, you, you can imagine those, those Spartans must have crapped their pants because <clears throat> to have the whole Theban line just hit them. Yeah. Right? They they were not prepared for that. Yeah. Especially because they were probably out of war even when it hit. Yeah. And they were in the midst of trying cyclosis. Yeah. So they had just brought, they might even brought off the whole rear of their, they might even not even have been 12 ranks deep because they might have taken the rear rank of their own forces off to send them off to the wing so it's hard to say exactly what happened there but whatever happened they were they were hit hard but it wasn't a it wasn't an instant kill i mean it was a fairly decent battle they had time to 
push the other enemy back and get their king's body back, for instance, right? Yeah, so such a it wasn't battle. a situation yeah, where they were just, uh, yeah, yeah. Ah, fantastic. All right, mate, so well, I I'm could gonna... talk all night about this stuff. So, yeah, uh, no, I couldn't. So I've actually, actually <laughs> got to go to my uh, my day job now and uh, yeah, do go and earn some money because this, this is all pro bono. And uh, look, I appreciate you taking the pro bono back. time too. Hopefully, they sell a book or two for you. <laughs> You take Excellent. Yourself. Yeah. We'll it's funny because I make, I make so little money off that book. It's a joke because uh, it, it basically covered my trip to Greece, right? It's all labor of love like this for you. I really hope you all enjoyed the interview. It was an immense amount of fun and something I intend to do more of in the future as and when the opportunity presents itself. Apologies for the at times questionable audio quality, but I hope the content more than makes up for it. Up next for the show, we'll be taking a look at Spartan citizenship in its entirety communal dining, land tenure, rights and responsibilities of the ruling elite. So please join me on Sunday the 9th of May for episode 24, Spartans. You can find me on Twitter at Spark underscore History, and Facebook too at Spartan History Podcast. If you like this episode and are keen to hear more, subscribe and have the podcast wherever you catch your pods from and leave a review. See you next time.